Hello, welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. Today's card of the day, the card of the day, card of the day, is the miser. Oh. Reading the teaching of the card says, This woman has created a fortress around herself, and she is clinging to all the possessions she thinks are her treasures. In fact, she has accumulated so much stuff with which to adorn herself, including the feathers and furs of living creatures, that she has made herself ugly in the effort. This card challenges us to look at what we are clinging to and what we feel we possess that is so valuable it needs to be protected by a fortress. It needn't be a big bank or a box full of jewels. It could be something as simple as sharing our time with a friend or taking the risk of expressing our love to another. Like a well that is sealed up and becomes stagnant from disuse, our treasures become tarnished and worthless if we refuse to share them. Whatever you're holding onto, remember that you can't take it with you. Loosen your grip and feel the freedom and expansiveness sharing can bring. The moment you become miserly, you are close to the basic phenomenon of life, which is expansion, sharing. The moment you start clinging to things, you have missed the target you have missed because things are not the target. You, your innermost being, is a target. Not a beautiful house, but a beautiful you. Not much money, but a rich you. Not many things, but an open being available to million things. So this card is very funny to me. I, I personally kind of love this card because... Uh, it's one thing that I really like about the Osho Tarot deck is that, you know, a lot of spiritual New Agey type cards and things like that can be um, oftentimes, oh, like the, the King of Rainbows and the <laughs> the Knight of Peace and Eternal Union and Forgiveness. And then with the Osho card, you have <laughs> the Miser. You know, you have, there's another card that says, uh, guilt in it and that's the name of the card and there's an image of a woman that looks like she's being her skull is being clawed by these metallic hands monstrous hands and the miser card here is this like haggerty old lady built into a wall and it's just like this really disturbing look on her face the way she's drawn it's like oh god the miser is gonna be an interesting day <laughs> so i personally really like the osho card deck because it gets real you know it's not always just something fluffy about like Oh, life is just butterflies and whimsical. All right, the funny true story one time was years ago, my friend had at their house some, some those fluffy, bizarre, goofy, new age tarot deck card I ever saw. <laughs> one of the teachings was like, today's a good day to let a friend know you that you love them and maybe you want to go outside and pet a kitten. <laughs> kind of stuff like that i was like all right this just seems like you know that that, that isn't that's is an osho deck that we can say is bypassing the dark side of life while that the what i what i love about the the tarot deck here the 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 osho deck i think i might have misspoke there a moment ago but i don't like to edit these things so we're just gonna roll with it this is the osho deck the one with the miser and it really encompasses this dual nature to life this you know the capacity for us to deeply miss the mark, which is what the word sin translates to, to miss the mark. Here they say, you've missed the target because things are not the target. And this is what uh, I like about the Osho deck is that it knows we mi we're going to miss the target sometimes. It's not going to lie to you. Sometimes guilt is what you're dealing with. Sometimes it does feel like you have metallic claws 
screeching into your forehead. Sometimes you do behave like a miserly, haggardy old lady clinging and hoarding all your possessions, making you kind of disturbing to be around. All of us do this at some moment, unless you're perfect, petting a kitten somewhere. Anyways, I really like this card. I also really love the, the not just for the fact that it's real and it kind of, you know, makes you aware of all your stuff, but also like the, the teaching here, I think is really valuable is what, you know, the woman has created a fortress around herself and she's clinging to her possessions. She thinks are treasures. So breaking this card down, the teachings, the first thing you're creating a fortress around yourself. What does it mean to do that? You know, we don't like to have other people in our space to a certain degree. You know, we want to have our boundaries. That's my boundary. That's my stuff. Don't touch my stuff. All kinds of things. Um, you know, even thinking about New York, where I'm at, but New York City, where I, where I used to live, the idea of, you know, when they went to buy New York City from the indigenous people, the indigenous people were, as I truly understand the story, they were very confused with the premise that you could buy land. Buy land. You can't own the land. How can you own the land? How could you be so self-absorbed and self-aggrandizing to think that you can own the land? I mean, the idea of it is stunning, right? Because if you think about what is the land, especially from assuming we don't already have the indigenous perspective, but take the indigenous perspective, the idea of owning the land I mean, come on. The idea here is just like what Alan Watts said, where we weren't born on the earth. We were born out of the earth. You can't own it. It's a living thing. The complexity, and you can't own nature. <laughs> yeah, you want to buy it from us. Okay, sure. Here, give me some beads. Okay. Yeah, those guys think we just sold them the earth. <laughs> I mean, this psychosis there accepted as normalcy i think that uh j krishnamurti said something like it is not a reflection of sanity to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society something like that i think we can look fundamentally right there at the idea of land ownership that being said i own some land which i'm on right now i participate in this world because i am in it what can i do about it but simultaneously, I live in a community where there are many parcels of land, and there is a large sense of freedom and sense of communal gathering, even around private pieces of land within the community, several pieces of land here. We have a sense of, like, if I see people in my community on my property, I'm not like, why do I have my property? That's not something that comes to my mind. Nor do I often talk in that accent. I would have to be quite disturbed to talk in that accent. But the idea here is that, you know, we are stewards of the land. We take care of it. You know, we've given to it to be here. You know, it's just something that we take care of for a little while. And this is something that Robert Thurman, coming back to in the book, Infinite Life, Awakening to the Bliss Within, it's talking about where it's this idea of clinging to your possessions you think are treasures. All this stuff that you accumulate, you cannot take it with you. As you pass through life, 
and die, you'll realize it was much more about what you could have given than what you could have received. Those of us, according to this card, that cling to our necessity to obtain and take and accumulate, we become ugly. And not from the outside. From the outside, we may become extremely beautiful, which I think is the backwards allure of pop culture. Everything looking superficially beautiful, sexy, appealing. Oh, Ferraris, alcohol, beautiful women, blah, 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 all this kind of thing. Cool guy, muscles, all this kind of thing. <laughs> but then inside the person, you know, level of depth of actual self-love of caring and compassion true creativity not just status not just hierarchy not just one-upmanship and this kind of thing how much of that is actually there so this card is telling us what challenging us to look at what we're clinging to because we all do this on some level there's not you know anyone i think that that doesn't if you read a book called being ramdas by ramdas a memoir he talks about later in his life after meeting maharaji he goes and spends time with several gurus one of which i believe sai baba famous guru i can't recall the other teacher's name but he recalls there being this like war between the two of them, not war and violence, but con you know, competition and about money and status and you know, I don't recall if it was specifically those teachers, but some other teachers were like sex manipulation became a big part of it and just you know, we look at it and we can judge, oh wow, those guys aren't saintly. Or we can look at it and say, Oh, those guys are just like everybody else, you know, and all this on some level participate in all kinds of things. Uh at that being said, I don't think that, you know, not everybody is doing something like getting involved in manipulation or money laundering or sexual assault or, you know, this kind of thing. Obviously, there are lots of people that don't even ever consider going down those roads who also reach high levels, degrees of awareness and wisdom and, you know, power in the sense of empowerment over themselves and sharing with others to share with others i think is an empowerment over oneself over the egotistical survival biologically programmed rooted aspects of oneself to cling so i'm bringing up that example of ramdas because you know we can look at these these gurus who were gurus with thousands thousands of followers who were caught up in the most you know immature minuscule petty, disturbing, you know, menacing in some moments, levels of behavior, thought, action, and ways of relating. So important to recognize if they can do it, you better bet that at some point you either have or you will or you are at the moment. I hope you're not, but, you know, who knows? Best to clean all these things. And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, we're not making a judgment towards people, places, and things at the moment. What we're trying to do is just raise awareness about what it is within us that behaves miserly. Why are we always holding back? 
something inside of us that wants to be expressed or shared, what is it that we are afraid of losing? And it's something, it doesn't need to be all of our money. And this is an interesting thing. I live in a spiritual community where, you know, donating money is something that it just needs to happen at certain moments. It's a necessity. It's important. We have projects. We have humanitarian missions. We have um, temple we need to build. We have... um, we need new art supplies for the art class. We need new things for the facilities so we can all participate in things. You know, we need firewood, blah, blah, blah. We need all this stuff. It's it's important that we participate with our money, you know, and that is important. I'm, I'm not de-emphasizing that whatsoever. It is important that we are generous with our wealth. And a one way to figure out, you know, people say, I'm not wealthy. Well, one way to figure out whether or not you're actually wealthy is to be generous, let me rephrase that. One way to one way to create wealth is to become generous. You know, there's a saying in the Tao Tai Ching, once you realize you have enough, then you are truly rich. And that is something that I think can't be overlooked. Is that, you know, abundance is not something re- created, it's something realized. Perhaps it's realized through creation. <laughs> if you can follow me here, I sometimes can lose you people. What I'm trying to say is that once we start giving, we realize how much we really have. And that's really an indication of true wealth, you know. And financially, just to give, wow, $50 to somebody who really needs it. Recently, our community was donating some money to the Hunikuin in the Amazon jungle whose villages were flooded. Hunikuin are a tribe, indigenous tribe in the Amazon, the region of Acre in Brazil. Sing amazing songs, bring a lot of the healing power of the Amazon to the world. We donated some money to them because we had several of these Hunikuin representatives, tribal leaders come to a online festival we did and share some music and they've been kind of in contact with us and offering their teachings to the world about unifying the planet through ecological necessity and through a one consciousness, spiritual recognition through nature, through traditional ways of relating and communing with nature plans through prayer and song and community. And so, you know, we donated some money to them because of what was happening with the uh, flooding that occurred there. And just to give $50 to them, I mean, that's like, wow. You know, that goes a long way for them. You know, sometimes we think, I got to give all my money away. Got to give everything away. And I've heard a teaching that at some moment you do have to do something like that. You know, I've I've always perceived the spiritual path as kind of like a video game where, yeah, you get, <laughs> you know, we're not even the spiritual path. Life is like a video game. You get better at it, but then as you get better, the challenges get greater. You know, the sacrifice that's demanded is, is even deeper. The you know, God wants to take my only son? What kind of sacrifice is this? But this is the kind of, you know, thing that we need to take small baby steps towards. And you don't even realize, you know, $50 put in the hands of the right people for the right moment, for the right cause, can save someone's life. And like, you know, this is something coming back to being Ram Das in the book. He's talking about his teacher, Maharaji, said to him, Love, serve, and remember. Love everyone, tell the truth, serve everyone, remember God. 
serve everyone. And they start an organization for uh, helping repair blindness through eye surgery for poor rural people in Nepal. And they calculated it, it turned out to be $12 would help the person. $12. I used to work at a raw food place where you could not even buy a certain smoothie for under $12. So, you know, this is a meditation about, you know, this when you come from the ultimate consumer culture on the police of, you know, let's buy the land country. Let's buy the land. I own the land now, you know, like the, the epitome of that. When you come from that, New York City is what I'm referring to, coming back to the earlier reference of buying New York City, the audacity of that. And you are saying... You're coming from that culture, just built on that bedrock of, you know, stealing the land, buying it, and then kicking out the indigenous people. It's built on that, amongst many other things, racism, institutionalized slavery, genocide, and so on and so forth. And $15 smoothie, all right, yeah, you know, that's what, when we think $15, if you're coming from that culture and you're from a certain socioeconomic status, you know, if you're living like... You know, certain spots in the Bronx and Brooklyn and other places, like, you know, that's obviously not your reality. But for a number of people, the people who came to the store that I worked, which had a lot of diversity to it because it's New York City, you know? It's like, there's diversity there. You have every country, every ethnicity, every race, every religion in, like, a few square miles. So it didn't necessarily cater to one specific population, you know? But point being that it was a $15 smoothie. I was working there, and I made $9 an hour. Nine dollars an hour. If I work for an hour and a half, I can afford to buy a smoothie. Wonderful. <laughs> of course, there was an employee discount. I've got fifty percent off. So if I worked, you know, for one hour, I could buy one smoothie. I think if I worked ten hours, I could buy ten smoothies. Wow. Moving up in the world. <laughs> this was in two thousand and twelve. I was working at Juice Press. It's funny, too, because when I was working there, like, I knew the owner. Still know the owner. He definitely won't forget me. <laughs> <laughs> For good reasons. Not bad ones. Uh, you know, it's funny, though, because it was like I had... There was a guy who was funding it, Michael Karsh, who was a billionaire. And I had his phone number in my phone. And I was like, well, I got this guy's number in my phone, Michael Karsh. And I am... He's a billionaire. And I am making $9 an hour for the company he's investing in, you know. <laughs> One day I can buy more smoothies. Eventually, I moved up in the company, this and that, and then I eventually figured out I can just work for myself. I don't need to work for the $9-hour smoothie company, Juice Press. He used to sell a, ba like a, a bagel. You could buy at the grocery store. You could buy these sprouted bagels at the grocery store. They would just put some cashew nut cheese on it and sell it for $9. God bless me. One bagel for $9. Not even a homemade bagel, you know? It's a raw food place. <laughs> Anyways, the when you're in that kind of culture where, you know, you're that's that mentality is $15 buys you a smoothie, you don't really realize perhaps the power of what you're sitting on in terms of the amount of money you have. You, know, you might only have a couple thousand dollars and Or you might be paycheck to paycheck, and you still don't realize how far it is that what you have can go. And this is one beautiful thing about service is that service reveals to us what we 
have to offer the world. It reveals to us the true wealth that we hold inside. It reveals to us the the, the beauty inside. And this is what this card is trying to get us to look at. That, you know, we want to f- unlock the box of jewels inside of ourselves and within our being to be shared to the world. Don't just seal it up and allow it to stagnate. You know, a gift becomes toxic if you stop sharing it. And this is why we have to take the risk of being vulnerable, of putting ourselves out there and feeling the world and allowing the world to feel us. You know, because at the end of the day, if, if we become this big fortress like this woman in this car, we just become sick. We become a shell. We don't even become human anymore. It's like the life force gets sucked out of us. We have to bring forth what's in us or what is inside of us will destroy us, it says in the Bible. There's something within you that wants to be uniquely expressed through you. And it doesn't want to be expressed through that culture or that religion or that authority figure or that political party or that society or that cult or that community or that particular language and blah, 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 blah. What I'm getting at here is that there's something that needs to come out of you, unique to you, that is your medicine, that will reinvigorate and replenish yourself and life. So if you don't share your treasure, it will turn to poison. So as it says here, Like a well that is sealed up and becomes stagnant from disuse, our treasures become tarnished and worthless if we refuse to share them. Whatever you're holding on to, remember that you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Loosen your grip and feel the freedom and expansiveness sharing can bring. And this is a big reason that I am doing this podcast is that even if no one listens to it, even if no, even if everyone who listens to it hates it, that's fine. You can hate this. You can hate me. You can hate everything I say and disagree and disagree with the way I say it. And you can label me as arrogant, as immature, as misrepresenting traditions and teachings and blah, 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 blah. Whatever it is that you want to do to label me and what I'm sharing here, I don't care because... I cannot take this treasure with me. (laughs) This is just something that I have to offer. This is just a karma yoga, you could say. It's something that I'm unattached to the fruits of my labor. You know, it's not to say I don't care about what I'm saying. I'm thinking very. I when I when I share what my thoughts here, my stream of consciousness, and you know, my discussions about life and dharma and this. I it's for me very much. It's like a recapitulation of existence of what I'm doing because all the things I say here, I 100% actively try to live my life by these principles and these teachings, and these are things that I'm constantly recycling in my mind to keep me on track as to what I need to do and how I need to go about it. Uh, and I try to live and die by these principles where it's not, these aren't things I just talk about. I try to live this way. You know, I do community service every day. I'm generous as much as I possibly can be. I also become very miserly at certain moments. I'm like, ooh, you know, my wife, Michelle, will come in the room, and if I have two chocolates, there's been a time, I hope she doesn't listen to this, where I've not told her that I've had two. <laughs> 
you can have a bite of this one chocolate I have, I say. <laughs> the idea, you know, but like, you know, this is kind of facetious. That's the right word. But my point in being here is that the basic premise of life, according to this card, is expansion and sharing. And if we become so constricting with how it comes out, we become really ugly and really messed up and sick and confused and wondering why is everything going against me in the flow? And I would like to argue that as a creative person, I consider, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, I'm a philosopher by my own accord. You can call me arrogant for saying that, whatever. Even my philosophy is garbage. It doesn't matter. My point is that I'm a creative person and I know from being in place of like, whoa, like phenomenal, expressive creativity and things moving through me in ways I can't even begin to explain, which is why I love doing these podcasts. They, they unlock that like, you know, philosophical creativity I have or what I love to share through word and spoken word and this kind of thing. I've, there's been moments where all of a sudden it just becomes like nothing is working. <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. All the stuff that I thought would work is not working and it's falling apart. And not only that, I feel like I'm falling into some terrible hole. And they say where you stumble, therein lies your treasure. So if we fall apart, Rather, we will fall apart, even if we're doing everything perfectly, because this is this is life. This is the reality of life. We're coming back to, you know, Bodhi's speak is the name of this podcast, because I really resonate so deeply with the teachings of the Buddhist tradition, and this idea of life is dissatisfactory. Like, like to say life is suffering. There's pain in life no matter what you are going to do. This is an inevitable reality of existence. We cannot fundamentally alter this yes suffering is optional okay really go on it is optional there is a way out of it but you're gonna have to go through it to a certain degree to understand that and then you're gonna have to experience within your own karmic you know debt that you owe what it is exactly that you need to do to bring yourself back into the place of uh, that's what I was looking for okay and then how to stay there how to hold it how to hold that posture essentially but not to become too rigid with it so this is why we're talking about the middle way how to hold it tension you know grace within the tension Grace within the tension. I teach Tuvan throat singing. I'm not Tuvan, but I teach it. What's cool, actually, is I have a loop station that I'm speaking through right now, so I can actually share with you some throat singing. Here's the first style of Hume.
So that right there is a delay effect on my voice. <laughs> was actually hume and sigut. Sigut is the high whistling sound. I'm going to put the delay back on. That's what it sounds like without the delay. So, right there. Uh, I teach throat singing. To get a good throat resonant sound within the Tuvan tradition, with Hume, Seka, Tortir, Kargara. Kargara is a very deep one. one. Who doesn't love the sound of that? Those different sounds there are are best executed when we utilize grace within the tension. So the idea here is that we are holding this posture of tension in our voice. But at the same time, we are relaxing into it. And this is, I think, what the Buddha missed by the middle way. So when he says, the moment you start clinging to things, you've missed the target. So the moment we start getting obsessed with the posture, our teacher at the Golden Drum Community, Maestro Manuel Rufino, the Taino Initiatic Tradition, and many more, has always expressed this idea of we get so caught up in the guy with the headdress, the guy with the crown, the guy with all the fancy music, person doing all the fancy prayers, praying to Mecca 50,000 times a day, doing 10 billion prostrations. We miss all of that. No, excuse me. We don't miss all that. We get sucked into all of that. What we miss is the actual understanding that the true teaching, the true depth of what it is that we're trying to get to is in the inner posture. And oftentimes the most ordinary, boring, unsuspecting people are the ones who are really, really deep into something. So don't miss the target for the superficiality of life. Don't get distracted by the frivolous nature of things. You know, Don't mistake a book for its cover. We like, we've all heard that many times before. That there's something in the depth. There's something beneath the surface. There's something that's really worth chasing you know and there's a lot of things along the way that can distract us and i've heard maestro manuel rufino say many times that the path is vertically very straight you're going up you're moving up the energy is going up there's the transcendence level there's a reason you know practice in yoga the breath work the pranayama you know keeping the posture in the sitting meditation whatever it is we're doing you know, want to bring things to a higher level. Yet, the way that unfolds externally is extraordinarily tricky. Like, whoa. Hmm. And confusing, and there's a lot of aspects to it that are unpredictable, twists and turns, and very funny situations that reveal all kinds of aspects of ourselves where it seems like perhaps we're going backwards. And so it's important for us to pay attention to, are we becoming miserly? Are we becoming covetous, possessive, uh, you know, 
overly possessing our relationships is how is jealousy affecting us in our lives is jealousy arising you know the idea of like that person is mine right these things are mine it was funny i actually had to interrupt this recording cuz someone from my community came in to borrow my truck he walked in as I was doing the recording and just looked at me and I go, yeah, it's a steak is. I, don't, I have no idea what he's doing with it. I don't know when he's coming back with it. <laughs> he just walked into my house to take my car. <laughs> but so this is where communal practice becomes an opportunity for us to essentially create external surroundings where we're forced out of certain possessive nature about things. And, you know, there's a lot of value about this. And this is an interesting thing too because I once, you know, heard Eckhart Tolle say, in response to whether or not people should be living in community, saying something along the lines of like, oh, well, you know, the difference is like if you have the ego outside the community, then it's just like a bunch of egos living together in the community. And, you know, of course, anyone who's actually lived in a community would agree with that on some level at some moments. But then there's also this powerful thing that happens where, you know, if we really are consciously practicing mindfulness and awareness and compassion and generosity and patience and openness creativity real spiritual practice you know real discipline on the internal place then there's a moment where we do transcend that aspect of ourselves that egoic thing it's there but perhaps because it's there in a pronounced way because we're all stuck with each other we're able to see through some aspects of it that ordinarily would remain covered up. So this is a very beneficial thing for us to do, is to be in these kind of groups and gathering around discipline, around practice, with this shared collective intention that we want to move out of what the Sikh society has programmed for us. This mentality that's built on, we own the land. I own the land. Ugh. I own the land. You know, what kind of mentality is that? You do not own the land. Nature cannot be possessed. Nature is so far beyond all of us. You know, it's ingrained within us. But just the... the the level of distortion that must have occurred in one's one's mental, emotional, habitual framework to think that they are so important or so powerful that they could take possession of something as dynamic and as you know infinite as nature, even a parcel of it, the depth of the ecology that exists just within a few small meters in terms of the plant life and the bacteria and the soil and the elements present of the water and the air, you know, the idea of I own the airspace, you know, what kind of insanity is this? So we're, this is the collective expression of miserliness. But we need to constantly reflect on how is it that we are behaving like this? And this has been, this is something that I think, you know, we can take the level of what these teachings are in these cards because, you know, on one level we could just approach this from someone who's just, just introducing themselves into spirituality. You know, this is just like, I'm going to try to become enlightened. I am taking the card of the fool. Let's just see what happens, right? And, you know, what is the card of the fool? It's the person taking a step off of a cliff, chasing something up in the sky. 
<laughs> that right there, I think, is perfect. That is the perfect representation of the spiritual path. And I feel, on some level, I've only recently come to understand this. Uh, I am turning 31 this month on the 23rd. And I've been, I would say, deep in a spiritual search um, consciously since I was a little past 18 unconsciously searching for quite much longer than that. I remember when I was 12, sitting down to meditate, wondering about nirvana. I've always been very philosophically, inquisitively minded for truth, wanting to know what is true. You know, that was something that was always crucially important to me. And I think that the fool card is a fascinating representation of what we're getting ourselves into because he's clueless, first of all, then going up for something in the sky, but it's clear he's headed off a cliff. Not to worry, though. I mean, there's no, there's nothing to be concerned about. <laughs> this is an eternal process. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that, and this is what I think is an interesting thing to reflect on, is we are expecting cosmic, intergalactic, alien, star being, bliss, chakra, juicy situation womp womp oh my god party life's amazing somehow unified divinity i mean and this is something that i'm you know i'm being i'm joking around here with kind of like on some level neo spirituality from west coast culture on some level but it's it's present in everything you know this is like i look at hinduism you can look at the iconography the iconography kind of like you know is overwhelming with this and some of it's very cheesy and corny with the way you know krishna and things are depicted and stuff and but not just hindu iconography tibetan buddhist iconography uh really iconography of all religious cultures because it's this idea this ethereal thing that we're chasing up in the sky heaven up above you know and and like i was just saying a moment ago there's a moment where it is about moving up it is about overcoming these biologically rooted lower chakra, lower vibrational density aspects of ourselves, lower emotional vibrations, these dense aspects of our personality. It's about taking that stuff and, you know, going into it and transforming it to reach this transcendental state. But it seems like to get there, we need to fall off a cliff. We need to go deep down within, into the depth, into the abyss. And that's that's what the fool card is depicting. So I think on a certain level, though, that's, you know, you could look at that as positive or negative, right? We could say, like, positively, like, you know, they're going into the abyss, they're going within. We know the transcendent lives there. That's what they're going to find. That's the positive expression of the fool. You know, also the one that leads with their heart, the one that is not holding anything back, that trusts. So let's let's read the fool card here because it's interesting. Moment to moment and with every step, the fool leaves the past behind. He carries nothing more than his purity, innocence, and trust, symbolized by the white rose in his hand. The pattern on his waistcoat contains the f colors of all four elements of the tarot, indicating that he is in harmony with all that surrounds him. His intuition is functioning at its peak. At this moment, the fool has the support of the universe to make this jump into the unknown. 
Adventures await him in the river of life. The card indicates that if you trust your intuition right now, your feelings of the rightness of things, you cannot go wrong. Your action may appear foolish to others, or even to yourself if you try to analyze them with the rational mind. But the zero place occupied by the fool is the numberless number where trust and innocence are the guides, not skepticism and past experience. A fool is one who goes on trusting. A fool is one who goes on trusting against all his experience. You deceive him and he trusts you, and you deceive him again and he trusts you, and you deceive him again, and he still trusts you. Then you will say that he is a fool. He does not learn. His trust is tremendous. His trust is so pure that nobody can corrupt it. Be a fool in the Taoist sense, in the Zen sense. Don't try to create a wall of knowledge around you. Whatsoever comes to you, let it happen, and then go on dropping it. Go on cleaning your mind continuously. Go on dying to the past so you remain in the present, here, now, as if just born, just a babe. In the beginning, it is going to be very difficult. The world will start taking advantage of you. Let them. They are poor fellows. Even if you are cheated and deceived and robbed, let it happen, because that which is really yours cannot be robbed from you. That which is really yours, nobody can steal from you. And each time you don't allow situations to corrupt you, that opportunity will become an integration inside. Your soul will become more crystallized. Okay, so there's something that jumps out to me right away in this card, which is don't try to create a wall of knowledge around you. Whatever happens, let it happen. That right there, and then also that which is really yours, nobody can steal from you. Right here, you can see the mentality in the embracing of the fool archetype is the healing antidote to the clinging, fearful possessiveness of the miser, the, the archetype of the miser. So this is, this is the positive expression of the fool. Obviously, the negative is, is very clear. He's walking off a cliff. I mean, it's going to hurt. <laughs> There's no way around it. It's going to be embarrassing and painful. It's just how it is. You know, until a certain level of mastery, you know, presents itself, it's going to be painful. That being said, who cares? Who honestly cares? Why should you care what other people think? What other people think they can do to you? If you're following what the fool in the card is following. In this card deck, he's grabbing a flower. You know, it looks like a lotus that's... That has... Not necessarily a lotus, but a flower. You know, it's a beautiful flower. He's following some... He's following an unfolding, flowering, expanding process. And he's trusting that with all of his heart. And I can say for one, I've definitely gotten myself in all kinds of situations from doing that where, oh, I wish I didn't say that. That was very foolish, <laughs> embarrassing, humiliating. I wish I didn't do that. But in the process of doing that, the things that opened, you know, someone can knock your ego, but that's not really who you are. 
What are they destroying? A self-concept about you. If you're not, in, if you're in a place of following that flowering, that opening, that trusting, that innocence, and that purity, then already you're dropping the egoic storyline of the miser. You're dropping it. So if someone comes to attack that aspect of the psyche, the, the, the clinging, the recoiling, the possessing, the tortoise going into its shell, if they're coming at you from that place, because that's generally the place someone is going to attack, you know, if that's what they do, you're already letting go of it. If anything, you know, and this comes back to, I believe I said this quote on a previous podcast and Meister Eckhart said that, excuse me, the quote is attributed to Meister Eckhart, but it comes from a film, Jacob's Ladder, wrongly attributed to Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic who Eckhart Tolle named himself after. But the quote is extremely beautiful. Whoever came up with it, it is a wonderful phrase. It says, when you're frightened of dying, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you're not afraid of dying, the devils and demons are really angels freeing you from the earth. And that right there expresses this dynamic of the miser and the fool. Because you have the miser clinging. They're afraid of dying. They're afraid of losing this possessiveness, this thing that they are holding, whatever it may be. Money, a relationship, power, a self-concept within themselves about who they are. Whatever it may be. But a fool is not afraid of dying. They're running off of a cliff because there's a flower. I may die, but <laughs> I might go to some other much better place. And this is something that I think is so beautifully expressed through the Tibetan tradition. On my computer, a photo of the Potala Palace just came up in Tibet. The original dwelling of the His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Right as I said that, in good timing. Yeah, the Tibetan tradition, I think, speaks quite well to like what is happening in this process of death. And it's this idea that death is a process. It's not an end. It's a process. Just like life is or was a process, an eternal process. There's a consistent unfolding, and death is just a very deep petal in that flower opening. But that being said, in the Tibetan tradition, what's so fascinating is that they say, this has happened so many times. Imagine a dove flying over Mount Everest with a napkin, a very thin napkin in his beak, and every seven years, only once does it cross over Mount Everest with this napkin in its beak. And the amount of time that it would take for that dove with that napkin every seven years to go and brush the slightest bit of snow off of the mountain where a tiny speckle of snow falls. The amount of time it would take for that dove with that napkin every seven years, that tiny speckle of snow, to erode the entire mountain to for it to disappear. That's how long you've been reincarnating and doing this. Whoa, providing perspective. How long we have been here, eternity, 
it's a long time, they say. How do you approach life with that perspective? The illusion is that I just got here and everything here. This is my one chance to be wealthy, to have sex, to be powerful, to desire to create, to enjoy the lost and sensual desire to be so on and so forth. No, <laughs> that is wrong. You have been here forever. And this is your opportunity to recognize that finally. Whoa, we have been on this ride for quite some time. And it's starting to get a little repetitive. Because maybe there's something more... indulgingly satisfactory, truthful, that we can touch through these dissatisfactory, superficial, sensory-level experiences. And it will require us to embrace this understanding, though, that we've been here and we've been here over and over again, and there's something for us to grasp about what it means to be free because if we keep chasing the carrot on the stick without learning the lesson that it can't be caught what is to become of us? Paying attention to the way that the earth and life unfolds there's an evolutionary principle within nature how fortunate we are to be beings that have the capacity to contemplate and not just contemplate, but act upon generosity, patience, peace, wisdom, generosity, again, kindness, friendship, empathy, compassion, tolerance, forgiveness. How many animals can really act on those things? I'm right now, what's coming up on my computer is an image of a roaring jaguar and then two elephants holding tusks like they're holding hands and then a crocodile coming out of the water you know the crocodile can't really act in compassionate wisdom compassionate generosity the elephant on some level can the elephant can engage in creativity they've taught elephants how to paint so we have here a recognition that there are higher levels of relationship, of functioning in the world, of an understanding of, of divinity that is limited to specific types of beings, right? You know, and, and for an animals such as a crocodile, violence is something that's inherent in its existence. A human being has the capacity to completely and entirely transcend that in many ways. Vegetarianism, veganism... Obviously, we're still consuming some aspect of life because plants are alive. The microbiology gets consumed and destroyed and changed and this and that. But this idea, this the idea of aggression and attacking something that so many creatures and life forms are deeply engaged in, we have the capacity to move out of it. 
And there's something about that that is deeply special and not to be undervalued or appreciated, but to be really recognized as a blessing to be, you know, carpe diem, seize the day of that situation of, of what it is that you have. And this is why, you know, coming back to this compassionate action, compassionate action, you know, it's all about action in these days. It's not about just sitting back and witnessing but rather acting while sitting back and witnessing if you can balance those two things because it has to be a paradox here has to be you know what action leads us into that place of being able to just bear witness with compassion you know to be fully engaged but to take a step back and to recognize like the preciousness of our human birth as the tibetans say because so many of these animals it's just like there's not a conscious necessarily willing and awareness to bring oneself towards an evolutionary developmental trajectory but human beings can take this understanding that we have the capacity to overcome ourselves to transform ourselves to evolve ourselves for the better of others and ourselves, recognizing that the other and self are one and the same, and experience a unification of of healing, loving, blissful capacity, and that we need to take that opportunity because. How often does it come around? How often are, are we stuck in a life form or in a human dwelling that's not even aware of this capacity? Instead, we have the capacity to recognize generosity, service, compassion, kindness, peace is the way to the highest liberation that you cannot even begin to comprehend. Wow. Just to say that, not even to walk it, just to come in contact with the teaching of that, you know, forget walking it, just realizing, whoa, I can see the larger picture here finally, that there is an evolutionary principle to life, that I can choose the direction I will evolve towards. Will I evolve towards kindness and compassion and peace and harmony, or will I self-destruct into chaos and abyss and tremendous suffering. I have choice, and it's not just limited to this single lifetime. It's an eternal process. It's always occurring. That's an amazingly liberating thing to come in contact with. It still shocks me to this moment. And it should shock us to this moment. Because we suddenly realize that we have what I feel in some ways is the alchemical stone. Compassion. Peace. Simple things that it's not necessarily something that um, requires like thousands of years of study or, you know, this and that. Although on some level it does because many incarnations one has to go through. But the point is that even the most violent human being on earth can understand the concept of love and peace and compassion and unity. It's not complicated stuff. It's very simple. But for us to really 
you know, come into that place within ourselves and be like, that's what we're looking for. Wow. And to act from that place. This is what I've been looking for. This is what we've all been looking for. But we've been programmed by billboards and bad parenting and poor decisions and incorrect information and overly intellectualized philosophies and poor religious, political authority figures, societal discrepancies, and just simply the way things are because of a lack of consciousness and awareness without judgment that we've been warped into a completely misunderstanding of what it means to be happy, what it means to be free, what it means to be enlightened. You know, the idea of enlightenment as like a goal. I mean, what, it, the idea of that is is total... The word that comes to me is hogwash. <laughs> it's hogwash, I tell you. The idea is that we... <laughs> enlightenment being a process is something that makes much more sense. No matter how transcendental the experience that overrides us and we overcome with, we're looking to come into a place of simply growth evolutionary growth towards the opening of the heart in its full capacity which is an eternal process it doesn't stop this idea of life being a a, a to b complete linear you know westernized that's my clicking sound is a mistake and i think this is at the root of a lot of our suffering is this concept of linearity because if things are linear, then who cares if you're violent towards another? In fact, violence is the answer. There's a problem. Just get rid of it. Okay, but if you're in a more cyclical, eternal understanding of life, how do you deal with this? <laughs> there's violence here. On some level, there's always violence. What is the correct mindful action, understanding that this is an eternal process, evolutionarily speaking, how do we engage with this? How do we participate in it in a way where there can be some level of freedom in it? I don't necessarily have an answer for that easily. I think there's a lot of traditional things that have been said about it that are very helpful. But it, I think that there is this process that we need to understand about. Life feeds on life. If you watch Life of Pi, that's the revelation at the end of the film when he goes to the island and it eats everything. It feeds on itself. It's terrifying. It's painful. But my God, it is beautiful. It is. It hurts, but it's beautiful. Life feeds on life. You know, the idea I've been studying, you know, fasting is a practice I've been doing many years. And there's a process, if I can pronounce it correctly, autophagy, which means to eat oneself, like a snake eating its own tail. This is a process where when we fast and we abstain from food long enough, what happens is our body enters into this autophagy process where what we're doing is we are eating up the cells and all the garbage in the system 
that needs to be recycled and cleaned out and it's being used as energy. So the body is eating itself, but it's a cleaning process. It's a recycling process. It's an energizing process and it's a restorative process. That's a key thing, restorative process. So perhaps there's a way for us to be in this participation of, you know, where violence and destruction is a part of life. If you want to, you know, preserve the forest, sometimes you have to light part of it on fire, you know, but that's the, that's the protective restorative aspect of it. So there needs to be this thing here where, you know, we really understand that. Um, how can we participate that, but compassionately? How can we participate with that, but like not just compassion, but with wisdom? Because we could do something terrible. Maybe well, I'm being compassionate, but I have to do it anyway. But no, there's a way to be compassionately wise about how we have to engage with things. Okay, we have to cut some trees down. But we don't need to cut down all the trees. We can pray to the trees. We can plant a tree after cutting one down. You know, there's things to do. Ways to preserve, protect, honor, respect. And this is a difficult walk, you know, to find the flower as the fool does is one blessing in and of itself that takes lifetimes according to the Tibetans. But then to have the guts to follow and jump off the cliff is a whole other walk that takes, wow, that's difficult. And then once you've fallen off the cliff to keep going, I mean, how often does that happen? So perseverance, tenacity, patience, resolve, inner strength, humility for asking for divine guidance. These are all traits and qualities that we need to act and operate on daily if we are already in a position where we have fallen off the cliff. You know, we need to work together we need to come together. We need to understand what it is that unifies us, especially at this moment with COVID. We need to unify in a way to help bring forward the nectar of like this search that we're on. You know, that's that's really the message I think that a lot of the elders are saying that these days is that we need to come together as a human species. We need to come and unite and look past our differences and at the same time celebrate our differences, celebrate diversity, you know, not tolerate diversity, but celebrate it, okay? We all have different ways of relating to what the same thing that we're stuck in different color, different words, blah, 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 so on and so forth. How can we just celebrate and unify within this diversity and then walk in that way with integrity? And this is the difficult aspect. This is where most people give up. Because I think that to walk in that way, you are constantly having to throw yourself off a cliff. As Pema Chodron says, we have to constantly throw ourselves out of the nest out of the familiar and comfort and step ourselves into the aspect that is just uncomfortable and unfamiliar. 
And that is not easy, no matter how long you've been on the path and how many times you've done it. Because as I was saying, it's sort of like this thing where as we get stronger and more aware and more confident, the challenges get greater. (laughs) They match that. There's constantly this pressure. Life confronts us every day. Are we actually moving into this space that has been... we've been asking for we were asking to move into this space you know we want to test ourselves we want to unleash the potential within but do we fully comprehend the responsibility the gravity of that you know the but power is intense because it's not just to be powerful it's also to be like wielding it in a way where it does not act against you Tremendously difficult. Pull you through all kinds of loopholes and things. Like we said, the path vertically is straightforward. The path externally is very tricky. Suddenly, we're in situations and circumstances where this is not what we wanted nor where we thought we were supposed to be. Why is this happening? Maybe it's just the medicine that we needed at this moment. You must know what I'm talking about if you have made it this far into the podcast. (laughs) if you're just looking for the superficiality of things if you think because i'm not wearing a headdress or i have a big fancy robe or i speak a language that is foreign to you or don't rather do that then you are missing what is trying to be communicated here it is difficult and it hurts all the time what can be said about that this is consciousness being born out of pain which is the way consciousness comes into life we come born to the world screaming but that isn't to say it's not beautiful the difficulties and the joys in life balance each other out there is something magical happening in the alchemical transformation of going into the shadow of facing the demon of being confined where you stumble therein lies your treasure there is something happening we need to have faith not hope payment children says abandon hope abandon hope all ye who enter here that's a good sign for it because it's not going to get better. It's There's just things come together and they fall apart. And this is how it is. And our acceptance of that process can bring us into a place of more resiliency and maturity and growth and actualization of this evolutionary potential that we're trying to seize upon. So having patience with ourselves, having acceptance with ourselves, is a very difficult process for everybody. Some comes more easily than others. To help others in this process too makes it easier for ourselves. So it is wise to be compassionate from a selfish perspective, I believe the Dalai Lama once said. 
to do things for the benefit of others, recognizing that it also brings healing and peace and serenity to you, is a wonderful, motivating, and operating tool. We have to take each other up with us. This is what happens in the allegory of the cave. You know, the person escapes the change in the confines of the constricted mind and heart, moves past the illusions of power and manipulation, the allures and the trappings of that, transcends duality and steps into the world of pure potential, the voidness of existence far beyond anything we comprehend. But they come back into the cave. They come back down. Even when 90-something percent of the time they're crucified or executed, they come back down to let us know that we are trapped. For whatever reason, no one wants to know that they're trapped. They say, ignorance is bliss. Obviously it is not, but this is the premise, that to be shaken out of our... I don't know what the word would be to describe it. To be shaken out of our illusions is a frightening process. To awaken to the fact that we are chained and be manipulated, not just by people in power, but by the habits, the thoughts, the emotions that we empower, that have been Im imprinted upon us. When I say we, I don't even mean we, I just mean like the way that the nature of the mind, the brain, the ingrained function of what we are, the way that that operates. What we consider to be us, fundamentally, the I, the way that that is enslaving us and when I say us you know the 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 foolish aspect of us you could say the part the open heartedness aspect how the heart becomes enslaved by the mind how do we free that aspect of ourselves it is not easy work and a lot of times there's a backlash from even becoming conscious of it where we all of a sudden will intentionally throw ourselves more deeply into ignorance and darkness and density and confusion because to face that light is blinding which is what happens in the allegory of the cave when the person steps out of the light they're blinded they can't see they have to look in the pond for the reflection So what we have to operate from is a place of tremendous compassion, especially the deeper we get into the work because we start to understand that you only come to consciousness really through facing the pain. Why is that? I don't know, but it's true. You go to Vipassana, you just sit there. It's excruciatingly difficult. And multiple people tell me it's like torture. You know? Sitting in a sweat lodge until you feel you're about to pass out and you're wriggling on the floor in tears. I mean, come on. It's not exactly the, a cup of tea. But when we experience and embrace this discomfort and this pain fundamentally, you know, we embrace the pinch. 
I kind of think of it like that. It's the pinch. You know, it's the transformational pinch. We embrace it. We step into a space where there is a release. And I had an experience actually this morning. I went for a run. It was very cold, 16 degrees, and I wasn't wearing much clothing. And I, there was wind for quite a bit of the run up against me, and it was like ferocious, like wind. Uh, I couldn't feel my fingers for about half the run. It's only a 30-minute run. And when I got back, <laughs> you know, I had a Santa Claus beard from the humidity from my um, breathing, freezing. And I just had to lay on the couch, and I just did not want to move. And I just sat there and stared, and, it, and you know, felt my... the. Uh, after drop of the recirculation of the blood, you know, just painful. Yet something about it, cathartic, except being released from perhaps you could say like the neuroses of the egoic preserved, preservation-oriented mind is a way to put that. Just being in a place of I am my breath not conscious not not intellectually but just being that just being my breath and being in the moment and recognizing i'm just going to be here sat there about 15 minutes just cold and exhausted circulation pumping (sighs) you know it and so why i'm sharing that is this idea of Sometimes it requires this getting run through, what do they call it, the ringer or something like that, the gauntlet, where all of a sudden, that's really what just knocks us out of the thing that we were clinging to. You know, your story about you. This is what Eckhart Tolle talked about. It's just the story. Near constant anxiety and depression. Just like the person was like, who is even thinking this story? There is a awareness behind it that is just watching and then watching that story implode because that's not who you are you're not that you're not those emotions you're not the thought you're not the story but he only came to that through excruciatingly you know from suffering unnecessarily you could say it was necessary in retrospect but how many people just go through that and that's just their life and you know they never consciously will themselves out of it so this is the blessing of this moment is that we have these teachings that allow us to activate our willpower to move out of suffering. And maybe we won't get to the place that we want to get with it. Maybe that's impossible. Maybe that's like chasing, catching a flower in the sky and expecting not to fall and hit the ground. It's just not going to happen unless you have a helicopter attached to it. I don't know. the point being though that we might never ever reach a place of healing or resolution within ourselves in the way that we want we might be on some degree forever struggling with that same thing that self-judgment that self-confidence that hang-up psychologically the sexual hang-up the mental hang-up our physical features not reaching full capacity, our creative outlets never being this or that. There's always people around us who are better in this way or that way. We might never ever get anywhere. We might be I might say we might, get, we might not we might not get to that place we're looking for. You know, that's what I'm saying. We definitely will get somewhere. But if we will ourselves 
in the direction that the bodhisattva is coming from, thinking about others, acting for others, being kind towards others and ourselves, being gentle with ourselves, being compassionate towards others and ourselves, if we can act from this place, something miraculous can happen. And I know it can because it's happened within me many times because I've, I've walked the path for a long time and it is hella difficult and it hurts a lot of the time. But there's been moments where it's like, wow, we've broken through something here. I can't believe it. I never thought that would have passed. And that's another beautiful aspect of the Dharma is impermanence. This too shall pass. It doesn't matter how horrible it is. On the flip side, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. We're going to experience change in our life. And I was thinking as I was running, something was bothering me last night. I thought to myself, there's a part of me that wonders, you know, is healing even real? Because sometimes like you can heal from something and then it comes back twice as worse. You know, I've experienced that before in my life. But then I can also look and say, it is, but not in the way that I think it is. Because it's like, you grow out of it. You grow into something else. And so the you that's experiencing perhaps symptoms of a similar obstacle, you could say, whether it be external, financial, relationship, mentally, emotional, physically debilitating, whatever the problem is in your life, whatever it is that you're experiencing... You know, we can, we're coming, we're, we're a new thing. So we're changing so deeply that no, this is not the same thing. We have, we did heal that. We overcame it and we can do it again. You know, we can transcend ourselves. This is the recommendation not to be a miser. Share what it is that you have because Not just from this abstract, although I don't personally operate and think of it as abstract. I think of it as very practical, this idea that you and the other are one. But rather, do so because revealing your generosity will reveal your true strength and abundance and your capacity as an agent for transformation. But if you cling, you know, something along the lines of like, we are as big as what we love and as small as what we fear or hate. That's a good way to look at it. So if you want to expand yourself, which is what the initial card of the miser is talking about, we need to step into a place of abundance and generosity and giving and becoming a vessel and a channel for the spirit to move through us in that way and to bring forth life. Otherwise, what is inside us will totally destroy us. If we block it, You're always blocking what's happening. So don't block the flow. Easier said than done. It is difficult. This is why, you know, only a few people become Beethoven. (laughs) In that specific example, only one person becomes Beethoven. But this is why only a few people become, you know, world-renowned teachers, artists, musicians, and politicians, right? You know, if anyone could do it, 
if anyone could unblock the flow that deeply, it would just be, well, insignificant. You wouldn't notice it. So it is difficult. And so that the I think the meditation here is not you know don't become is not I need to become great because we all can get lost in that one. I mean that's like the, probably the easiest thing to get lost in when you're on a path of transformation and discipline because you start to get good at something and you're like oh I'm the one who knows I'm so great I'm going to start my podcast and share my teachings and then people will come to me and you know da, 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 this kind of thing. <laughs> You know, my point. My point here of what I'm trying to share is more just like that. We can get really caught up in this idea of becoming something, and that's not, I'm I'm sharing this podcast here just because I was mocking this example. I'm sharing here because it opens a love within me and an authenticity, and what I perceive to be an innate wisdom that isn't present in all of us. This innate wisdom. I connect through it through speaking. And this is a medicine that I share is the Dharma and my interpretation of it and what I've experienced through life and my version of it and to speak from it from my perspective. This is what is a medicine that I carry, that I share out and put it out into the world. And if no one listens to it or receives it, that's fine because just to offer it, the offering, the act itself is the medicine. If you just hold it and it's there, it's not medicine. It turns to poison. It turns to black magic. If you offer it and still no one receives it positively, that's fine. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it takes forever. Vincent van Gogh died thinking he was a complete failure, as did Black Elk. All right. There's countless examples of people who were persecuted for their work in healing and spiritual awakening and so on and so forth, who never saw the fruits of their labor. Yet, it doesn't matter. If this is an eternal process, it does not matter. They're, the act of giving is reciprocated on some level. And it's impossible to know what will become of it even or what not even necessarily will become of the of the content like for instance this of of like you know your artwork as a person that you put forward no let's say no one ever sees it no one ever not not even that no one cares about no one ever sees it it just just gets lost but you put it out there and it was it was done in that respect with that intention to come from that place and that intention I think is eternally invaluable that you came from a place of sharing the depth of your soul with others with the intention of awakening and illuminating people just to come from a mind space of that intention and act upon that. That is profound. That is profound. Who cares the content? The fact that you were oriented in that way and that acted upon it is enormous the karmic implications of that are profound and should not go unnoticed should not go unvalidated within yourself and this is something that I think can't be uh overstated enough and this is something 
two that Kurt Vonnegut talked about, and I pulled up the quote here. He says it really well. Go into the arts. I'm not kidding. The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way of like making life more bearable. Practicing an art, no matter how well or badly, is a way to make your soul grow. For heaven's sake, sing in the shower, dance to the radio, tell stories, write a poem to a friend, even a lousy poem. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward. You will have created something. I mean, right there. Is that not a way to live? I love what he says here. Practicing an art no matter how well or badly. <laughs> Do it as well as you possibly can. This is, this is the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> this is Taoism. This is enlightenment right here. It is not what you do, but how you do it. Of course, the what here is, you know, you're doing the R's, so. But he's saying it doesn't matter what you do. Just do the creative act. But it's how you do it. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward. Right effort. Right effort. That's something, you know, in the eight, Noble Eightfold Path. The right view. My perspective is that I'm searching to bring healing and light and kindness and generosity and awakening and restoration and balance and equilibrium to the world. Right intention. My intention is not for myself. It's for us. It's for unity to occur. It's for harmony. The intention, I'm coming from an intention of harmony. And right intention is interesting because the dentist inflicts tremendous pain upon you at certain moments, as does a doctor. But they're coming from an intention of healing. So they are a doctor as opposed to someone who inflicts tremendous healing and, or tremendous harm on you, but from an intention of violence and, you know, that person is a criminal or whatever. So our intention matters here, you know. It matters in, in the in the path here. You know, the intention is just as important as anything else. It's not like you know, right results. It's right intention. <laughs> it's the idea of what what was the intention of where you were coming from that can you know imprison or uh, exonerate you is your intentions. Right speech. I think this is kind of what I was sharing about this idea of like, you know, you want to bring something forth to connect for people. The speech. Where? How are you communicating? Is your communication coming from the place of the intention? Right? The idea that like your speech. If you're intending to heal people and bring balance and equilibrium to the world, don't go around cursing and, and and spitting on everything. Speak highly towards people. Speak highly towards yourself. Be kind in your speech towards others. Use the power of the word to help bring light into the world. Use the power of the word to create because the power of the word can destroy too. It can end relationships. It can get people killed. It can do all kinds of horrible, terrible things. But if we come with right speech and understand, you know, when to keep silent too, because that's a part of speech is silence. As much as 
generating sound, you know, the absence of a sound is equally important. So understanding not to be an automatic, not to be habitual with our speech, but to be very socially conscious, to have a have a control over our character, our mouth, our word, the words themselves. Are we thinking negative thoughts about people and then turning that into speech which we spread? How can we speak more kindly to others? How can we speak from that place, the jewel in the lotus at the depth, have that connection not be severed by the negative, dense, emotional garbage? Right action now. How can we act in a way in harmony with our intentions, practicing what we preach through our speech, acting from the place of the visionary perspective of this idea of eternal rebirth, of unity, of oneness? How can we act in that way, in harmony with Dharma, in harmony with life? How can we act in that way? And that's something unique to every person. I've heard from our teacher, my Sherman, well that path of initiation is individual. Some people need to have kids. Others need to not. Some people need to have lots of sex. Some people need to be celibate. Some people do this meditation. Other people, you need to just calm down with the pranayamas and meditations. Everyone is different. Those are different ends of the spectrum. A lot of us are in between those things. The idea is that each of us is needing to understand the right action for us as it pertains to the moment with where we are at. But without losing accordance of our value system and our view and our intentions and what we talk about, are we just talking about the path or are we walking it? Right action. Act upon your words. Act upon what you intended to do with this lifetime and act upon the perspective that you now have, that you are an eternal being moving that needs to move towards an evolutionary potential freedom of suffering for yourself and others. Act upon that. Right? Livelihood. Livelihood. What do you, What is your work? Are you in that kind of a dharmic person, but then you sell weapons? Okay. You sell drugs. You, sell, you, you know, are involved in industries that, degradate the earth or you're involved in pornography you're involved in anything that is moving in the opposition to that evolutionary healing unifying potential your work should be a reflection your livelihood how you sustain how you operate your habits it's not just that you took action, because you did take action. You jumped off the cliff, but now you need to make that your habit. Daily, you need to jump off the cliff. You need to step out of the nest, out of your comfort zone, and move into the unknown. Sorry, Arjuna, you have to fight. You don't just have to act now. It's an eternal process. It needs to become the essence of your being. The heart needs to be on the outside. Most images of saints, the heart is on the outside. It's giving. It's brought forth. Right effort. I've always understood this as if your bow is pulled too tight, it will snap. 
the musical instrument strings too tight, it will snap. If it's too loose, the sound will be very wonky. The arrow won't shoot. If it's just right in the middle, precision. Ah, beautiful music. So how we apply effort towards these things. Do we go too extreme? I have definitely done that many times. Gone too far. Okay, that wasn't really the path. The path is temperance. Right mindfulness. Are we losing our awareness and our mindfulness? In the Tao Tai Ching, it says, with family life, be entirely present. I like that. I think that, that sums up something here, where there's different degrees of mindfulness at different moments. If you're at work, you can't just be completely present. Well, let me rephrase that. You can't just be, you can't just let go like you can at home. At home, you need to let go because that's how you're able to step into a place of, you know, harmonious relationship with those that you love in your family. But if you are at work and you just let go, then your effort and your livelihood and your action are suffering <laughs> and your speech will mean nothing and your intention, your view will fail. So what we want to understand here is how are we applying the correct degree of mindfulness at the, de at the specific moment? Is this a moment that's requiring precision, concentration, and focus? Or is this a moment that requires an expansiveness and an openness to whatever unfolds without you know, guiding energies in a specific way. If you're driving on the highway, that is definitely a moment that requires focus. <laughs> you know, if you are a surgeon with a scalpel, you better understand right mindfulness at that moment is not wondering what happened on last night's sitcom. <laughs> no, right mindfulness at that, the only time right, you know, right mindfulness with the family is a time where we can kind of go off into like, what do you want to do today? You don't turn and say that to someone when you're operating on somebody. You don't say that to the nurse. What do you want to do today? <laughs> no, we need to do this. This is what's happening. And there's no room for improvisation, relatively speaking, or distraction. Which brings us to right concentration. Concentration. Similar, I feel, to right effort. Where... How are we concentrating our energy? And this is, once again, initiation is individualistic. Where, as someone living in a community, the right concentration, I find, is in a more grand distribution of effort. I'm learning farming. I'm learning construction. I'm learning music. I'm learning video editing. I'm learning peaceful dialogue, resolution, I'm learning the Dharma, I'm learning yoga, meditation, diet, nutrition, I'm learning the family home life, I'm learning to teach, I'm learning to be a student. It's very, like, integrated, because you're trying, this is the idea of the training of, of the community I work under. However, if you are going to uh, 
like a specialty trade school, the right concentration. No, just block a lot of other things out and just focus in on this at the moment. You know, where's your focus? So it's difficult on some level to understand the differentiation between, I think, concentration and mindfulness. Because mindfulness, I think, is what it is we are being mindful of. When you're in meditation, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the sensations of the body, mindful of how the emotions arise. But if you are doing pranayama, then the focus is on the breath, you know. And perhaps other aspects of what's happening in the physical framework are to be disregarded, so... The idea here is that we can utilize the willpower to move it towards a particular trajectory. And the exercise and engagement of the will is extraordinarily important and not to be undervalued or forgotten about. Uh, I think it can be very easy to get caught up in this idea of Oh, I just surrender, and whatever happens, happens, and just go with the flow. But I don't think that's what's being offered here. What I hear, what I hear within just in the first word of all these um, attributes is right. That's the first word consistently. The right way, the right. You know, the implication, the indication is that there's a specific way of relating to what's happening, where we can hold that firmness, that grace within the tension, within the posture. It's a posture we're talking about, an inner posture, about how to align ourselves with what's happening in the world. And this is a very difficult posture, you know. This is why yoga is not asana. It's an aspect of yoga. But yoga is so much more in-depth. And what's needed is this process for us to internally relate to the world. Because it starts from that place, that view, that intention. You know, turns into the mindfulness, the concentration, effort, turns into action, speech, and livelihood. But what's important to understand is how we are Keeping a posture that is firm but gentle, this idea of that, you know, yoga being a control of the waves of the mind, of holding ourselves in a equilibrium and equanimity. And this eightfold path being a method for doing so to bring us into that equanimity. And as we said, the path vertical equanimity is simple, up, straight. The direction towards doing it is very tricky. You know, sometimes the way to access the most equanimous aspect of yourself is to first get into an argument. That, I say, is not a teaching. It's just a direct experience I've had. I've had moments where I've tried just, you know, suppressing anger, which is not the right thing to do, but you're like, I don't want to bring that energy in, and then all of a sudden... It makes you sick, as opposed to there's a mild blow-up, which you don't want to have happen. All the teachings advise against it, but it happens because we're human. 
And then afterwards, suddenly you just notice that you're unaffected by a lot of things. There's just a lot of peace and a lot of serenity where before there was a lot of turmoil. And there would have been more more turmoil had you not said anything. So our meditation for today, in summary, don't cling and hold things back. You have to open yourself up to the world and share the gift that you have inside like a fool at certain moments. What they want to take from you or think they can, they can't. You're in an eternal process. You have the opportunity to grow into a liberated, awakened being And you can take miraculous steps in this lifetime if you apply right effort and so on and so forth towards that direction, engaging the willpower consciously in that framework. We will keep talking. Thank you for listening.